Hey, this is Taylor and welcome back to another message from Elevate Retake. We are continuing on in our series, Rethinking Church, and the speaker for this week is Pastor Kilgore. And the title of his sermon is Offering Healing to the Walking Wounded. A key text we will be taking a look at is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through 6. And that reads, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more, for you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. Your engaged question as you listen to this message is, what does where you walk say to those around you about how you live? What a blessing to be here with you today. And uh, I'm thankful for what uh, Pastor Michael is doing in this uh, expository preaching of First and Second Thessalonians. But there's some guidelines when you do expository preaching. You don't get to choose the topics. The topics are the next passage. Are you with me? So when we were together last time in chapter 3, down to the last part of uh, chapter 3, we finished there, and now we open to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Would you put that slide up, please? And let's notice what God says here. I'm reading from the uh, NIV, and you can see it here, and I want you to read this with me. Now, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. Now we ask you and urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's our assignment. That's the passage in expository preaching that comes after the last passage. Now, I would like to read to you a more modern translation, if you'll go to the next. Let me read this to you. This is from the, the message translation. It says this. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and speaking of the people who are living in Thessalonica, now you know from what you've learned so far about this book is that there's five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, five chapters, and every chapter ends in the second coming of Jesus. The last few verses of every chapter end in the second coming of Jesus. These folks are Adventists. Huh? They are. Just like we are. But they're Adventists in the first century. 
for Adventists in the 20th. I wonder if there's something we can learn from them. Uh, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we saw this in uh, uh, the second verse there, that uh, in verse, the first verse, we instruct you how to live in order to please God. Now I want to talk about that word live for just a moment. In Greek, the word for walk is pateo. But this word is peripateo, which means to walk around. Now in, in the Gospels, um, that word is used when Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee or they're walking into a town. But Paul doesn't use that word that way. When he's talking about walking, he's using journeying or, or going about or traveling. He uses this word peripateo, and it's interchangeable. Your translation may even have how you live or how you walk. You've heard that phrase, you got to walk the talk. That's a Greek thought. That where you walk teaches those around you where you live. Are you with me? That where you walk tells me where you live. And when Paul's writing to this, this group in Thessalonica, he's letting them know that there are some people walking in wholeness there. They have learned those lessons of what it means to live for God. And I love this thought, thought because many times when we talk about this topic, and it's interesting, when Paul moves to chapter 4, he says, finally, now, let's get down to an issue. When he writes to Timothy, he's in Corinth, and he's writing to Timothy to, to go and visit uh, Thessalonica. These two cities are, are known for the low, low moral ebb of society. And Paul writes and says there's a group of people living in Thessalonica who are living for Jesus. Isn't that something? They are walking the talk for the Lord. And he says this. He says in this text that not only should we live for the Lord, but he says this. Now we ask you uh, in order to please God. Who do you live to please? Who are those that sets the examples for you? Who's the authority in my life? When he says that uh, we ought to live in order to please God, what we're talking about is what is the authority in your life? Why do you live the way you live? Now, I, I love what he says. Uh, this idea of walking, moving about, in a way that shows the Lord, the world, that the Lord is your authority. Now, in ethics, there are three worldviews that we can look at here very quickly. Worldview is interesting. Uh, it's how it's how the world hangs together for you. And for a worldview to be uh, valid, it needs to tell where you came from and what you're capable of while you're alive and what happens after you die. Now, some people say my worldview is stuff happens. Well, that may be, but it's not a very complete one. It doesn't answer the questions of life that you're dealing with. Now, three worldviews. Uh, one is a philosophical ethic worldview. And I want you to notice, you see authority, expectation, and goals. Now, philosophical ethics emerged 500 years before Jesus. 
You've heard of Plato and Aristotle. And their view is this, that the authority of man is reason, observation, and logic. It's man using reason, observation, and logic. That's how you can tell what's right or wrong. And the expectations is that when you learn that, you will obey. You will obey what man has said is right in order for you to live. For what reason? To reach this goal. And the goal? The good life. That's what we all want. Now, I don't know, two-car garage, three-and-a-half kids, two-and-a-half kids, not three-and-a-half. But, you know, whatever the good life is, maybe two donkeys and a goat. I don't know. But whatever the good life is, that's the reason that, that you have these expectations. And if you don't obey our authority, we'll put you in jail because we want to protect the good life. Now, that's one worldview. Let's try another one. Turn, if you would. How about religious ethics? Notice the authorities, sacred writings, myths, legends, and expectations. Faith and obedience looks just like the other one. But look at the goals. The goal is afterlife. There's a reward for you living and being faithful and obedient. There is a reward. You may think it's strange that the Hindus will not eat a cow. But they don't do that for the same reason you love your grandparents. Because they believe in reincarnation, right? Doesn't make sense to you. But in their sacred writings, myths, and legends, they don't want to eat a cow because they don't want to eat grandma. You know? They want to respect them. That's the reason that the fellows who flew the planes into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon, they believe that in the afterlife they would be rewarded. This is religious ethics. But there is another worldview. Turn if you would. And this is Christian ethics. And the authority in Christian ethics is not man and it's not religious writings. The authority in Christian ethics is the revelation of Jesus Christ in Scripture. That's the authority that we live by. And notice the expectations. Faith and obedience. But I want you to see the goal. You see, the goal is eternal life, but it's not a reward. Eternal life is what? It's a gift. It's a gift. And we live the way we live with these expectations in a response to grace. Now, we're not saved by our response. We're saved by God's grace. And if we are saved by God's grace, I've got to say thank you. Don't you? Isn't that why the, the lady went into the upper room when that party was going on and broke that ointment and put it on him? Didn't want anybody to see her. She just wanted to say thank you. And that's what we want. And whenever the Bible says, as you saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to live a life pleasing to God, that's what we're talking about that you're living a life in response to God's grace. That's the hope that each one of us have, is that in this world, we walk in a way that tells the world we believe in God's grace. Uh, we're in a society right now that talks an awful lot about steps. Have you noticed? Do you know how many steps you've taken a day yet? Or you may by the end of the day know, but I want to suggest to you, 
that God is not just concerned about your steps, but he wants to lead you in steps that will make you whole. That's good news, isn't it? I want you to notice something. That this passage begins with a commendation, with an admonition. Sometimes it's dealing with intimacy. And sometimes we think when the Bible deals with intimacy or, or Christians talk about it, it's don't do this and don't do that. Do you notice what Paul said? There are some of you here living the Christian life. And I know it's not easy. And I believe that's true today. I think there's folks sitting here in this auditorium today that are living for Christ. And it's not easy. It may mean you don't get asked out. Or it may mean you, some people won't go out with you if you ask them because you don't want to go where they go. And you wonder, what in the world? It seems like everybody else is doing all of this. The good news is, is that God knows our hearts. And he wants us to walk in holiness. And that's why here, what it's talking about is that uh, those that are walking in wholeness now become an example for those who are walking and hurting. He admonishes those of you that are living for Christ every day. You don't think anybody notices? He does. Amen? He does. And then he says, do it more and more. <laughs> don't get tired. Keep living for Jesus where you live. That's in the first century. I think it applies in the 21st century, don't you? Keep living for Jesus where you live. But I want you to notice there are two groups. There's the group that's walking in wholeness, but there's also the group that's walking that are hurting. Notice what this says. The reason I put this up here, we sometimes think that our culture has a, uh, some kind of, we invented sin. You know, we have TV and we have all this kind of stuff. And, and so we're, in, we're involved in sins that nobody else has ever been involved in in the world. But I want you to know, and historians document, that this world's always been a sinful place. And in fact, uh, this is a quote. Yeah, this is William Barclay. Notice what he says. So as long as a man supported his wife and family, there was no shame whatsoever in extramarital affairs. One thing Christianity did was to lay down a completely new go code in regard to the relationship of men and women. Now, can you go to the slide before this? He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 3 and 4, that we need to learn how to live in lives that are holy, uh, that lift each other up. You see, he says to avoid sexual immorality. You know that that word sexual is the word pornea. And you can imagine what words come from that. What he's dealing with here, there are those that are walking in wholeness and those that are walking in hurting. And there's a difference. You see, love and lust are not the same. He says that we shouldn't live in passionate lust. Lust uh, is selfish. It's degrading. It discards when it's done. But love dishonors. Love honors and cherishes and bonds and provides for a, a secure future. You see, there's a difference between those two. 
And I want to suggest something to you right now. Contrary to popular belief, they cannot cohabitate together. Lust will always destroy love. God wants you to have a relationship in which you're in love with Him and with a person. And it's a person you cherish and care about. Years ago, I was teaching a class and a student came to me and said, Pastor Kilgore, you wouldn't believe this. And he brought me a comic book. And the comic book said, Superman is dead. And he was all upset about this comic book. And I said, that is horrible. Superman is not dead. Because he was never alive. Are you with me? This idea to leap over tall buildings in a single pound and bound and stop locomotives, that's called fantasy. He was never alive. So he's not dead. I want to tell you all something, and I know it and you know it. The idea that people think, oh, we can just spend a night together and get up the next morning and shake hands and go our merry way and be a better person because of it. It's a fantasy. Do you believe that? It's a, and I know we see it every day. People that seem to be, <laughs> my wife and I have some friends, and uh, their son had gone through a couple marriages, and, and so he decided he was not getting married. And these people told us, they said, he's taking it slow. They're living together, but they're not going to rush into marriage. Taking it slow. You know. It's almost as if we can take a part of a person, and you see, that's what pornography does. It takes just a piece or a part of a person. We can't do that. We, we have a physical and a mental and an emotional and an intellectual and, yes, a spiritual side. And you can't just take a piece of a person. God says that when you are married the way he intended you to be married, you become one flesh. Amen? You become one. Not just a piece of a person. You become one flesh flesh. And that's what he's dealing with in Thessalonica. And I think that's what this passage is dealing with today. How do we live and treat each other in such a way that people become whole? And those that are walking that way, that are walking in wholeness, what an example. You may not feel you are, but what an example to those who are broken, who are looking and hurting had a young lady come into my office once and sat down. I said, Pastor Kilgore, I don't. And I'd known this young lady probably even before she was born. I knew her parents. And she said, I don't understand it. She said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm living with my boyfriend. And I'm as lonely now as I've ever been. I'm just as lonely. You know that living together does not deal with loneliness that you can still be lonely, even in that situation. Whenever you marry someone, when someone becomes part of your life, you take all of them, right? You take the complete person, not a part. You see, you look at me and you say, Pastor Kilgore, you're a gray-haired old man. You're retired. We expect you to talk like that. But I have a quote here from the American Journal of Pediatric Medicine. You can look it up. I hope you do. Look up the effects of cohabitation on men and women. You could find this article. But you notice what it says? Contrary to the current perception of many adolescents and young adults who view cohabitation 
as a substitute for marriage or as a stepping stone to a more secure marriage, studies show. I'm not talking here about Bible studies. Are you with me? Bible studies show it too. But studies show that cohabitating unions are more likely to dissolve than marriages and that marriages preceded by cohabitation are more likely to dissolve than marriages that were not preceded by cohabitation. Go to the next one now. Cohabitating unions are more likely to involve infidelity, also more likely to involve violence. Furthermore, children, uh, whether born prior to or during or after per, uh, parental cohabitation, are at an increased risk for negative events. That's what that word means, sequelas. Negative results, including premature births, school failures, lower education, more poverty during childhood, lower incomes as adults, more incarcerations and behavior problems, single parenthood, medical neglect and other chronic health problems, both medical and psychiatric, more substance, alcohol, tobacco abuse, and child abuse. Cohabitating women are also more likely to choose to end their children's life prior to birth. That's a mouthful. This morning, I'm wanting to talk to us as a church family. I know there's folks sitting here that not quite old as me, but maybe getting close to it and been married for a while. We're not just here trying to beat up our young adults, though I'm hoping they see a picture. But in our lives as well, we need to remember that that spouse we have is the one God gave you. Are you with me? And it can happen that people can allow separation to come in even after you're married. And I'm so thankful that we serve a God that can even take marriages and rejuvenate them. Amen? He can take broken and make whole. And so I want to encourage those sitting here to know that. Yes, if you're not married, please think seriously about God's desire, the two becoming one flesh. But if you are married, remember you can't take a part of a person. The person God gave you is the person he wants you to experience and enjoy completely. I, I never like to talk about this topic. without. You see, the Bible says that... Uh, those who are involved in sexual immorality, they do not know God. Those that know holiness and happiness, they, when you know God, God has a way of redeeming, regardless of what our past has been. And the most dramatic example of that is Hosea 3. You know this story. If I start in chapter 1, we're not going to go there. But if I start in chapter 1, you know that God told Hosea to go marry Gomer. She was an adulterous woman. God said, before you can talk to Israel about my relationship with them, I want you to know how I feel. And so Hosea did. He married this woman, and she had three children. First one was a son named Jezreel. They named him Jezreel. Uh, Jezreel was one of the worst disasters Israel ever went through. Can you imagine naming your son that? Jezreel, this is my son, disaster, you know. We, we just call him 9-11, all right? This is my son. Can you imagine? And then in this relationship came a little girl, cute little girl, but you're going to call her Lo 
ruhamana, lo ruhamana, which literally means not loved. Oh, we didn't have you out of love. We're going to call you oops. Can we do that? So I got a son named Disaster. I got a daughter named Oops. And now I've got this last, they have one more son. And this is Loa Me, which is very straightforward. Not mine. <laughs> it's my son. He's not mine. Can you imagine? This is what God said to name these children. Not mine. The beautiful thing about Hosea 3, and I think it applies to 1 Thessalonians 4, is that uh, at the end of chapter 2, do you know that he has wooed, God has told Hosea to woo these children back to him and to accept them. And the most exciting part of this text is chapter 3. Because you think it's tough being a pastor's kid, you ought to be a preacher's wife, huh? Because here he is, everybody in town knows her. Everybody in town knows what she's been up to. And she's been traded and finally sold as a prostitute. And it's at this marketplace, tent is pitched, where she's being sold. And into that tent walks Hosea. You think there's a little chatter going on in that tent? That's her husband. Hosea walks in just when the bidding is starting. And look what God said. Go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves Israel. And you know what he did? When the bidding started, he bidded to buy his own wife. Can you imagine how silent? He said, I bought her for a home and a half of barley. He bought his wife back. And the last part of that passage, though, it's, it's not coming up here. Yeah, here we go. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, about a home and a half of bar, leak of barley. Then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any other man. And look at this. The faithful God of heaven pledged himself to her. And I will behave the same way. What? Isn't that beautiful? I don't know what your life has been like or maybe even what you're going through now. I hope you're part of the walking whole. Little do you know that your life may be an example to some who are walking wounded. And if you're walking wounded, maybe there's things in the past that you've been involved in that you look back and say, I shouldn't have done that. I want you to know something. We have an amazing God. Amen? A God that says your life can begin now. Listen, even when you've said yes, you can say no again. Are you with me? to say no again because of God's amazing grace who took back those three kids who took back that mother who took back me you I want you to know that we serve a God not only do we count our steps but God wants your steps to count amen let's pray together father in heaven thank you so much for this morning and I just pray that out of all we've done here that your word has shown through, that we have seen, that we can live lives that will bring glory to you and honor to you 
but also joy to us. May we not look to this world for our examples, but may we look to your authority. May we live our lives pleasing to you. And where we walk, may it tell the world about how we live. And may we live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Kilgore, for that awesome message on how we can learn to be a helper to the walking wounded. That was such a blessing. I encourage you to tune in later this week for another message from Elevate Retake, where Pastor Michael will sit down with a few people and dig a little bit deeper into this message and what it really means and maybe some things that you haven't really thought about. So tune in later this week for that. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you later.